uh, it's just it's just a cold, but um, I really ask for your prayers this morning as we get into today's message, starting a new series in Second uh, Peter, and not a book that is often preached, maybe not as often as other passages, has some weird stuff in it, has some hard things in it, and uh, for today, kicking things off, I'm probably going to be saying some controversial things, not probably, I should just say, I'll be saying some controversial things. I'll be addressing issues that I can't fully define and fully unpack for some of you are very familiar with some of the things that I'll talk about today and some of you may be largely unfamiliar and I encourage you to go do some reading and follow up with some of us afterwards and and find out a little bit more about what these things entail. But if something I say stings, please listen to the entire the entirety of what I'm saying, and not snippets. That's a major problem that we see in a world of Twitter and sound bites, uh, where we don't care about the context of what somebody is saying, right? We just get the quotes, whether to use it for our agenda or to use it to uh, attack someone's position. So all that to say, I ask you to pray with me uh, and for me. So let, let's... Come to the Lord together. Father, this morning before we approach the table to share in the Lord's Supper, before we enjoy communion together, we want to talk about unity and equality and what that looks like. And so we pray that you would allow our hearts to rest in your word. We pray that as I say things, our eyes would continually be locked in on the text so that the authority of anything I say would be derived from what you make clear in your word. And as we talk about how to apply these things, Lord, I pray for wisdom. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit. And maybe I don't have everything correct. We pray that we would think together about how best to apply what we see here. Lord, I know I need your grace, and we all need it to understand your word, to live it even when it's against the grain of going culture. Father, we pray these things trusting in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a world where you, will, you, you, you can't stop hearing about issues of inequality. But society is full of inequalities. The world is full of inequalities. Not everyone shares the same education. Not everyone shares the same access or opportunities to education. Not everyone has the same level of wealth. You have poor people, rich people, ultra-wealthy people, everything in between. No one's really equal. Even within brackets, you have people with bigger homes, four-bedroom, five-bedroom. They're different. You have people that have more connections, more networking. Parents that have networked well, so now they have better opportunities to network. Then you have families whose parents didn't know anyone in this country, and they have, they're starting networks from scratch. They don't know how to make connections. You have people that have great opportunities, grand opportunities, numerous opportunities, and then people with limited opportunities, limited in scope, limited in number. But as we think about what the Bible has to say about this, when you read the Bible, that's normal. That, that's normal. Who decides who is born in which family? God does. You, you look for a verse that says we should make sure nobody's rich and nobody's poor. What, where, is, where is that? What verse? You'll always have the poor among you, Jesus said. So yes, there are inequalities. But as I look through the Bible, I'm waiting to see where it says that everything needs to be equal. I mean, God chose 12 disciples. He didn't choose 1,200 disciples. Why did, he chose, why did he choose these 12 and not another? Why isn't Jesus an equal opportunity officer? God gives people differences in birth settings, differences in abilities, differences in aptitudes, differences in gifting, differences in talents. 
And the small talent person isn't supposed to tell the many talent person, hey, give me some of those talents. No, do what you're supposed to do with your talent. So the agenda to equalize all things is the world's agenda. It's not the Bible's agenda. I think we'll see that very clearly here, but as the world scrambles to try to make everything equal, we can see where a lot of it is coming from. There has been pain, there has been oppression, there has been torture and killing and murder, and it's a lot of it horrific, and a lot of it has been systemic. But as the world scratches and claws to find equality, they won't find it. They can't find it. They don't know how to define the problem, and therefore they don't know how to find the solution. But we have it. We have the solution, and so we need to talk about it. They don't know how to get there, but we should model equality because we know where to find it. We'll find that right in the opening verses of 2 Peter. So turn with me there, please. 2 Peter is a small letter. Many people argue about whether it's really from Peter. I find no reason to think that it's not. He gets pretty specific. Simeon Peter, in case you don't know who I'm talking about, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. I don't think this is someone trying to pass off as an apostle of Jesus Christ. I think this is Peter himself. Yes, it's a little different stylistically. Uh, but if you find, find a, an email I wrote 10 years ago and then read one that I re- wrote today, you'll find differences. <laughs> uh, there's differences in time, there's differences in education, there's differences in setting. I, I think this is Peter. But look at how he defines himself in this greeting. Now, you and I, we don't pay attention to greetings. You still probably start your emails with dear person. Is that person not dear to you? You don't even call your spouse dear. This is, this is from yesterday, right? This is from another... A time gone past, we just, you just start the email with dear, and you end with sincerely, as if other things you say weren't sincere, right? You know, these are just the way we begin and end emails. Peter's not doing, he's not dialing in the greeting. It's such an important greeting. It's an inspired greeting. It's an informative greeting. We're going to unpack just two verses for today's message. And he says who he is, Simeon Peter, that's my name, but my role is a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Servant meaning slave, that sounds diminutive, that sounds small, but Moses was a servant of the Lord. David was a servant of the Lord. In fact, it's an honorable position, isn't it, to call yourself a servant of the Lord? And he's speaking actually from a place of authority. And he puts that on par with an apostle, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, what's difficult is in the original Greek, right, they didn't have capital A, small a, like you and I will put a capital a uh, letter in front of a, uh, an office, a title, right? And then a, a non-capital would be just like any, any, any old apostle. And same thing there. Apostle just meant messenger. Are you a messenger of Jesus Christ? Do you take the Bible and communicate it to anybody else? You're an apostle. Are you supposed to do that? Are you commissioned to do that as a disciple? Yes. You're an apostle, small a. But more often, the Bible uses apostle capital A as the ones, the very few who were in-person witnesses of the resurrected Christ and were in-person commissioned by that Christ to the office of apostle. And so he's saying, here's this weighty intro. I am Peter. You know which Peter? Simon Peter. You know which Peter? The Peter that is the servant of Jesus Christ, the, the apostle of Jesus Christ. And he says, I'm writing to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Even though I'm an apostle, capital A, I spent time with Jesus. When I write a letter, it becomes scripture, and people study it for 2,000 years. Apostle, capital A, and you, and he's not naming names, he's writing to a group of Christians, a group of believers. And he says, you have obtained a faith of equal standing with apostles. So that at the foot of the cross, there's true equality. This is where true equality is found. It's found in, he says, how do you achieve it? This equal standing is with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Nothing you did, not your righteousness. God's righteousness accomplishes this great equality between all believers and even between all believers and the apostles. 
And so he makes it clear that his role as an apostle gives him zero advantage. He does not have apostle privilege when he stands before this congregation or when he writes to this congregation in terms of his standing before Jesus Christ. I want to unpack a few terms, okay? I want to unpack a few of the terms that are here in the text because it's going to lay a foundation for a lot of the stuff I'm going to say in a few minutes. Let's unpack a few terms. First, when he says a faith of equal standing, that's translated differently, but close in different translations. I'm just going to give you a couple examples. We're reading out of the ESV, or I'm reading out of the ESV here, a faith of equal standing. Lexham English Bible puts it, a faith equal in value. The New American Standard Bible says, a faith of the same kind. The NIV says, a faith as precious as our faith. And so whichever way you translate it, you see what the meaning is, that there's not one faith that's better than a different faith. You don't have tiers of faith in the church. Faithfulness, that's different. Maturity, there's levels. Experience, gifting, talent, of course there's differences there. He's not saying, so why don't you guys write scripture? Why don't you guys start the church, capital C? Why don't you guys get together and figure out how churches are supposed to go? No, he's not saying that. I'm an apo- you're not an apostle. What he's talking about is standing before God. What counts? What really matters in the end? You're standing before God. One person is not more equal than the other. One person is, doesn't have a greater measure of God's forgiveness than someone else. One person is not more free from condemnation than the Christian sitting next to them. You're probably sitting next to somebody, some of you here, sitting next to somebody that you deem more mature than yourself, if you're honest. This person knows scripture better than I do. This person has been a Christian longer than I have. This person knows more about Christ than I do. This person prays more often than I do. This person messes up less often than I do. And so, of course, there's maturity levels. Not everyone should be an elder. Not everyone should be a deacon. Not everyone should be leading a small group. Hopefully, there's a path and you can get there. It's open to everybody, but there's varying levels of maturity, varying levels of spiritual robustness, right? Various levels of understanding of God's word, and we grow in it. If there was no growth to be had, there'd be no, there's no growing because we're all just equal. Equal knowledge, equal roles, equal offices in the church. Well, that's not biblical. What does he mean? What he means is you're standing before God, the faith that you have. And how did you get it? He says you've obtained it. Some translations say you've received it. I like received better than obtained because obtained sounds like you got it. You reached for it. You grabbed it. This faith that you obtained, and that is not what's meant here. And the reason why I know that is because the word that's used there in the Greek is the same word that, you, that is used when lot, uh, lots are cast. Uh, you remember when you read the Bible, sometimes you see they're casting lots. They, they cast lots for Jesus' robe, right, on Calvary. Uh, when they wanted to replace Judas as an, as an apostle, they cast lots between two guys that were pretty close, neck and neck. We don't know how to decide. They cast lots. It's like an ancient version of rolling dice or flipping a coin, except they weren't saying, let's leave it to chance. They're saying, let's leave it to providence. Let God choose between these two, right? And the flip of the coin, let's say, hand, landed heads for Matthias. They're like, God must be choosing Matthias because God is even over the flip of a coin. In fact, uh, there's a proverb that says as much as, we, as you heard last week. And so if God is over even the flip of a coin in the ancient mind, you, can, you, uh, on a, you don't know how to decide, you flip a coin. I don't think you should be flipping coins to make decisions, but that's the word that is used. And so what he's saying here is, how did you obtain the faith? The lot fell on you. That's how you got it. Imagine you're standing in a group of people and somebody rolls dice and the number that comes up, your number comes up, you're allowed in, and your number doesn't come up, you can't enter into this party or whatever it is that you're showing up to. No one that's in there is going to be like, now I earned that roll of the dice. No, it fell to you. It fell to you. It was appointed to you. It came upon you. You didn't obtain it by your own scratching and clawing. You obtained it by receiving it passively, just as when lots are cast. And so when he says obtained, he doesn't mean merit or earning. He means it fell to you, just like when lots are cast. 
And then some people take the word faith there. When he says you've obtained the faith, they're like, well, they don't really argue about how they obtained it. Pretty much scholars are like, obviously it fell to them. But it can't be the faith that you have in Jesus because that wouldn't be fair. We don't want to be Calvinistic. And so it must be in the faith, meaning the, the set of teachings, the doctrine that's been handed down by the apostles. And I, I don't think it's possible, but I don't think that's true. Because normally when you see that kind of faith, it's the faith or faith that's been delivered to you, handed down to you, or he tells you, hold on to the faith. But here, as in the rest of Second uh, Peter, he's talking about a faith that you have in Christ. So as we define those terms, what is, he, what is he saying? He's saying we have equal standing because of the nature of faith. Faith isn't something you earn. Faith isn't something you merit. Faith is something that's given to you. How? By the righteousness of God. In his righteousness, he decided to drop faith onto you. And if you have any question about whether this, are you, are you talking about election? Yes, I'm talking about election. If you go to 1 Peter, he opens up with election. Peter likes to start his letter by reminding you how you got in. You didn't earn your way in. And if you didn't earn your way in, there can't be tears of Christians within the church. You can't have the super Christians and the almost Christians, the barely Christians. You are or you aren't. Because we, we're, your access to God is based on what Jesus did on the cross, his 100% performance on the cross, not 95%, and let's see what you've got for the other 5%. Now, those of you who've been Christian for a while, you know this to be true as you read through Scripture. And this is not just a throwaway Greeting. This isn't just like dear John, right? He's talking about why I'm writing to you, the way that I'm writing to you, the things that I'm going to demand of you as I write this letter. I can demand of you because I know you're in, and you're not almost in or barely in. You're in it the way I'm in it. And even though I'm writing to you with a certain authority, we are all equally standing before God with different roles, different talents, different giftings, different maturity levels, but equal standing nonetheless. So, yep, somebody sitting next to you might be more mature, might be more passionate, might be, might, might be running the race a little harder, and have been running it a little longer than you have. But be encouraged that they, they are not, they are not, they don't have more access to God than you do. So our faith in Jesus Christ gives us an equal standing before God. And we might think, man, is that really equal, the authority of the apostles? I mean, they founded the church, they write scripture, and all those differences that we talk about? Yes. Because this faith of equal standing is provided by Christ's righteousness, as we see in this text. And therefore, even though there's differences, I hope you understand how applicable this is. Even though there's differences in authority, talent, gifting, experience, there's still equality. Because it's based on a performance from someone else, you have what theologians call an alien righteousness that's been given to you. You didn't earn your righteousness. It's not your righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. If we can get that, then we can be models for equality outside the walls of the church. We need to be clear. I hope I'm not driving this home too hard and too repetitively, but we have to be able to see equality through differences. Remember in Galatians 3, when, when Paul wrote, I wrote it down here, Galatians 3, 28, very familiar passage. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Remember that verse? Because of this faith that we have, we are all one in Christ. So there's no male, female, slave, master, Jew, Greek. You think Paul was saying, there's no male and female. Was he the first gender inclusivist, the gender spectrum? He's the first gender spectrum theologian? No. Of course there's male and female. Of course males can do things that females can't do, and females can do things males can't do. It's ridiculous I have to say that today. Of course differences aren't wiped out. So what is Paul saying? Did he say, as we dismiss this service, or as you finish reading this letter, all slaves should go free? He, he didn't say that. Even if you want to make the case that he was hoping that eventually that would happen, that's not the point of this. He's not saying there are no Jews anymore. 
He's not wiping out ethnicities. Of course there's ethnicities. Of course you come from a particular tribe, a particular background. Of course women are women and men are men. Some people are employed, some people are employers, some people own businesses, some people work from the ground up. Of course there's, there's different roles in society and, and different roles in the church. Well, what does he mean then? What he means is your position in Christ, we are all equally positioned in Christ through faith. That means we can enjoy those differences in equality. In, not inequality, in equality, right? We can enjoy equality together in the differences. So that biblically speaking, we're not trying to flatten differences in order to enjoy equality, but rather embrace our differences, realizing those differences don't make us closer to Christ than someone else. Now, if you're like, man, that sounds pretty basic Christianity 101. Yeah, it's when we lose the basics that we lose the gospel. And when we lose the gospel, we lose churches. This equality stuff is splitting churches, splitting denominations. It's destroying schools, seminaries. The Christian literature is riddled with garbage because they're on a quest for equality the world's way and not the Bible's way. And if they would come back to this truth that through our differences, we have achieved this equal standing, not achieved it, but obtained it and received it through faith. And that through faith, we can enjoy that equality and recognize, yeah, this guy makes more money than I do. This guy has more cars than I do. This person is a different ethnicity than I am. Did the Jews have an advantage over the Greeks? Yes, of course the Jews had an advantage. They're God's revelatory people. They're the ones that wrote the Old Testament. They're the ones that received the Old Testament. And they had centuries and centuries and centuries. You want to talk about privilege? Ancestral privilege? The Jews had it. But Paul tells the Gentiles, you're on equal standing. Maybe some of the Jews didn't quite like that. Maybe some of the Gentiles didn't like that, because if you think anti-Semitism is a, is a new thing, you've not read history. And so Peter, like Paul, is trying to level the ground with the audience, and he levels it not by trying to get everyone into the same role, but recognizing, I am a different role than you. I'm an apostle, capital A, and you're not. I'm a servant of the Lord the way Moses and David were, and maybe you're not. But I can still tell you, you have a faith of equal standing because your position in Christ isn't based on your role in the church. It's not based on your job, your salary. It's based on what Jesus Christ has accomplished. So, no Christian is, this is important, no Christian, if no Christian has a better standing with Christ than another Christian, that means no Christian has more forgiveness from Christ than another Christian. That means no Christian has more freedom in Christ than another Christian. That means no Christian is no less condemned than another Christian. Again, if you think that's patently obvious and unnecessary to preach, you've not been on social media. You've not been in the academy, like I have been back at the academy for the last two years. It's quite disheartening. And I'm not just talking about the seminary where I teach. It's all over the place. And it's in churches, Christians arguing with one another, even hating one another as a result of their misunderstanding of what equality is, what we should be doing about perceived inequalities out there in the world. If it's so clear that we all have equal standing before God, then why don't we see equality among Christians the way we should? Why are we arguing about equality as much or more than non-Christians are arguing about inequality? Of course, for so long in this country, minorities, especially blacks, were horrifically treated in ways that monetized, politicized, even legalized racism. That's a reality. And you don't want to hide from the fact. You don't want to only watch Disney cartoons. Go watch movies. Go read books that depict what this nation was like. You should know it. You should sit in it. You should understand the pain. 
and the horror. And shame on the churches that just stood by. Shame on the churches that partook. Twisted and mangled scripture to try to defend some of this garbage. I'm not so arrogant to think that any of us, none of us here would ever be swept up into that. But I do want to say that as I've been thinking about this more and more, the Christians that were silent about racism then, maybe those are the same Christians that are silent about this crazy inequality nonsense happening now. And I don't want to be silent anymore, especially when I've got a text like this staring me right in the face. Lots of progress has been made in this country, but Americans, and even Christian Americans, are sharply divided as to how much progress has been made. Some Christians think we almost have it worse than we did before the civil rights era. Or it's at least as bad. Some Christians want to point to, look how much progress there is. There's the argument. A lot of us are quick to affirm that black lives matter. That's true. And here it goes again with the capitals. Lowercase black lives matter, of course. Of course. Put a hashtag and capitalize it. The organization, don't march with them. Don't wear their t-shirts. They don't believe in the inequality you believe in. They don't believe in the equality that you believe in. If you believe what Peter is saying in these first couple verses, they're not with that. They say on their website, their mission is to eradicate white supremacy. Do you think by that they mean the people wearing white hoods? No, they're talking about you. You. Well, I'm not a white supremacist. Right, that just proves how, right, that proves how racist you are. You can't even see it. I don't want to stand by and watch white brothers and sisters that are loving, that are equal standing before the Lord get tarnished by other Christians because they're swept up into this nonsense. They see on their website, we are working for a world where black lives are no longer systematically targeted for demise. So let me explain that. <clears throat> the view that many Christians share, black Christians and white Christians, Christians of all colors that are buying into this narrative, believe that in this country, you are hooked up to a matrix. If you've seen the movie Matrix, you kind of get the idea. You're plugged in, you just follow the system, a bunch of robots are controlling everything, and you're just a battery, you're just a cog, you're just a gear to make sure the big machine keeps moving. They want to keep you in your place, and if you try to get out of line, they will put you down. They'll shoot you, arrest you, put you in the jails. And the people that they want to use as batteries are especially minorities. But little by little, minorities and even whites are starting to wake up from this and realize this is a matrix. This is an overtly racist country that keeps inequalities in, in, at play in order to keep the machine moving. And when you get unplugged, what do you, what do you, you're woke. You're woke when you unplug. Now, I wouldn't be preaching on this if it wasn't infecting the church. The Woke Gospel, The Woke Church is a book you can go read. And it buys into their definitions of inequality, their definitions of what racism is. Racism is no longer what it used to mean. Racism is, you're white. <laughs> you're racist. Anything you have, you got it because you're white. Anything a minority doesn't have, we don't have it because you're white. And it's the great wokeness that they are pushing for and aiming for. I wrote this down and, and then I underlined it and put it in bold and I'll say it twice just so you can grab it. There's probably a better way to say it, but here goes. Today, the great divide in the church continues with minority Christians cashing in their perceived civic inequality for a proclaimed spiritual superiority. I'll say that one more time, and then I'll explain it. Today, the divide in the church continues with minority Christians cashing in their perceived civic inequality for a proclaimed spiritual superiority. Or the world that mean? I don't know. I could probably clean it up and make it a little clearer, but here's what I mean. Minority Christians are being taught 
to perceive the world as unequal towards them, oppressive towards them, and that the reason why it is unequal is because you have a certain color person, people, the whites, even the Christians, even white Christians, that keep that oppression going systematically, systemically. Therefore, they're evil. I mean, you and I would agree, is it evil to oppress someone, bully someone, push them in a corner and make sure they don't have as much as they could have? Yeah, who, who disagrees with that except the jerk, right? And so what they're doing is saying, look around us and look at the civic inequality, the way they perceive it, civic inequality, and they use that to gain spiritual superiority over you. You're white, that means you're an oppressor. If you're an oppressor, that means you're evil. If you're evil, you don't have equal standing with God. If I'm oppressed, that means I'm humble. And if I'm humble, that means I'm more open to the gospel. If I'm more open to the gospel, I have greater standing with God. Therefore, white Christians can never catch up to minority Christians. That's what that statement means. And that's what it means to be woke. I'd rather use woke the way Scripture uses it when Paul talks about Romans 13. Put off darkness, put off works of the flesh, and put on Christ. Why? Because it's time to wake up, he says. It's time to wake up. This darkness is almost over. The day is coming, and you need to be ready for Christ's return. And the only way to be ready for that is not political action. It's not getting the right politician in the right seat. The only way to be ready for Christ's return is to don the righteousness that only Christ can provide. That's why Christians have the only path to equality. And rather than shining the light, the only way to true equality, rather than shining that light, we're buying into this garbage. And there's no light at the end of that garbage tunnel. Why? Because you can't change your whiteness. That's why. If your whiteness makes you guilty and you can't change your whiteness, that means you can't change your guilt. It doesn't matter how many feet you wash, how many marches you go on, you can buy the BLM t-shirts, you'll never be forgiven by this movement. And for ethnic minorities, you are putting a yoke on, on our white brothers and sisters that Christ isn't putting on them. We live in a society now, and you know this is true as soon as I say it. You know this is true. And I'm going to keep it in the context of the church. Can an ethnic minority Christian make fun of a white Christian? Sure you can. You can make fun of their names. You can call them Karens. You can, talk, you can make, crack fun of their casseroles. Can a white Christian make fun of an ethnic minority Christian? Oh, you better not. <laughs> you better not. Why? Well, because it's payback time. You know, we lived in an era of blackface and constantly making fun of Indians and making fun of blacks and making fun of Asians. And that was horrific. But now it's payback time. Now minorities get to make fun of whites. Every time you watch a black comedian, it's, it's at least one bit in there about how whites do this and blacks do that. How corny white people are, how tight they are, how nerdy they are. That belongs in the world. That doesn't belong in the church. We live in a society where ethnic minority Christians can call for whites to repent by lumping all whites together into one guilty profile of lesser standing when that's precisely what they're accusing whites to be guilty of. Whites did that with blacks. Now blacks, it's their turn to do it to whites? That's not the gospel. I'm not arguing that we should erase history. I'm not arguing that there weren't horrible things in the past. Christians don't reach to the past to equalize the present. If we had to do that, none of us would be saved. You can never put the toothpaste back in the tube. That thing you said you shouldn't have said, you said it. You said it, and that will never be changed. There has to be a different way to get it erased. There has to be a way to get it expunged. Well, there is a way, and it's through Christ. His perfect righteousness that we get to put on, that we get to clothe ourselves with. And honestly, I mean, if you're just paying attention, this is why you can put on a, a BLM shirt and go burn down a family business. But if you go and sing outside together with white Christians to sing some hymns, you'll get arrested. 
Now, I expect that garbage from the world because the world doesn't understand the problem. How could they possibly offer the solution? But we understand the problem. We understand sin. We understand depravity. And therefore, we are ready to, to accept the solution that the only way out of that hole is through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying there's no room for social action. I'm not saying there's no such thing as racism today. I'm, I'm not saying any of that. But I'm saying we can't march together arm in arm if we're defining this, the problem wrong. <laughs> I don't agree with you about how you're defining the problem, but if we could get on the same page about the problem, then let's march together. Let's look for social change, but we can't do, look for those changes if we don't agree on what the problem is. I expect disagreement with the world, but the church, the church needs to understand what real equality is if we're ever going to have peace. Clearly, we need peace, and that's why Peter in this passage tells us where peace is found, how peace is multiplied, how peace uh, is grown. If you look at that second verse, I'm an apostle, you have equal standing with me, an equal standing of faith with, with mine, with ours, by the righteousness that we got from God and Savior Jesus Christ. And because of that, on the basis of that, flowing out of that, I want to give you a benediction right off the bat. I want to ask, I want it to be real, that grace and peace would be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Are we about grace? Are we about peace? Yes. And it's not just peace in our vertical relationship with God. It bleeds into the horizontal peace that we're supposed to experience with each other. How do we have the peace? How do we get peace? What message of peace do we have for a world where there'll never be enough riots? There'll never be enough looting. There'll never be enough political action for peace to arrive. What message do we have? Just put on their t-shirts, join their marches, retweet their tweets? What different message do we have? We have a different message. If we start with Scripture rather than starting with culture. So he tells us this peace can be multiplied. You have it, but it can be grown. He ends the letter with the same idea about grace in 3.18. In the knowledge of grace, you can grow. You can grow in that grace. You have it, but it can be more. And the reason why you can have more of it is because of this equal standing faith that we have that provides it. So how can we sing together a song that says that because of Christ, there are no guilty stains? There are no guilty stains. How can we do that and then turn to a brother because of their color? You have a little bit of stains, though. That's not the gospel at all. And so Peter's point is that our God-given faith is the great equalizer between all believers. And because of that, we can live in peace. We can have real peace, true peace. Let me close with just a few applications for us to chew on, to think about. And I'm hoping that one of the reasons why we wanted to move communion to after the sermon is because we come around the table, right? Equal footing in front of a table. Or the reason why we're equal is because of the blood that Jesus spilled and the body of his that was broken on our behalf. Just a few applications that I think really quickly I'll, I'll run through them. For the ethnic minority Christians... Don't assign guilt based on color. You know how hurtful that is when it happened to you or when it happens to you. The solution isn't to do it to someone else or do it back. In fact, we expressly have scriptures that tell us, don't do that. <laughs> don't take vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Leave that to me. Love your enemy. Love your neighbor. And I would, I would say, don't make enemies out of people that are actually your neighbor. <laughs> don't invent enemies where we don't need it. There are enough enemies. It's hard enough to love on them. I'll say don't withhold forgiveness. We talk about forgiveness. We sing about forgiveness. We preach about forgiveness. But if somebody comes up to you and really, they've really offended you, maybe they actually have been racist towards you, you don't get to just tell them you have to sit in that for a while. I'm not ready yet. Man, if God told you he wasn't ready to forgive you yet, you'd, be in big, you'd have a big problem. <laughs> But God doesn't withhold it from you. You dare not choke somebody else for the little that they owe you in light of what you owe God. 
I'm thinking back to the, a sermon we, I, we, that I preached when we were in the book of Revela- uh, Leviticus. Reparations are important. When it's clear who the guilty party is and when it's clear what you owed. Go read it. I mean, obviously, if you did something specific to someone else and you took specific things, and those specific things are still around, you don't get to just be like, I'm sorry, will you forgive Will you forgive me? Yeah, I forgive you, but give me my stuff back. That's not a person being unforgiving. That's you not doing your job. Give it back. So it's not that reparations are never necessary. The problem is not reparation. The problem is how, how are we defining guilt? To whom are we assigning guilt? And what exactly is owed? I mean, let's have the, I'm welcome to have the conversation. But let's have the conversation. Let's not just foist yokes upon brothers because of their color. And I want you, ethnic minority Christian, to understand you will not gain a win for social equality by casting your brother into moral inequality. That's not recompense, that's revenge. That's reversal. And that's the world. The world does that. Isn't it verging on the blasphemous? For two Christians of different color to have equal standing before God, but not before you. I'm not better than God. If God calls them brother, they're brother. I'm not going to look up their last name, find out how they earn their property, see if they have an inheritance, to see if they're equal. But we're equal at the cross. White brothers and sisters. Don't be ignorant of the past. Don't be so quick to like, ah, oh, that's so dumb, that was so years ago. Learn. If you think the reason why whites meet in churches and blacks meet in other churches is because blacks are just social isolists, read a history book. They weren't allowed to be here. <laughs> Understand and learn, and don't be ignorant. But while you're out there, you are going to feel the pressure and the weight of the accusations. And you're going to realize the way to move forward is to just play the game. Because if I don't play the game, I'm just going to prove that I'm a racist. What's ironic there is that if you play the game, now you're racist. Because you're taking actions based on color. So don't try to escape accusations by playing into the woke game. And if you are an employer, if you have the opportunity to bring people into opportunity, don't trade character and competence for color. That's not empowering. That's patronizing. Some of you, maybe this is your first time, you looked at the email or you looked online and you said, Lucas O'Neill, great, we got an Irish guy talking about about equality. Well, once upon a time, The Spanish and the Irish had this little deal going. They had this little gig where the Irish populated much of the Spanish Navy. As the Spanish colonized a small island of Puerto Rico, which was full of Taino Indians, suddenly you have this influx of the Spanish, the Irish, African-American slaves. Have you ever seen a Puerto Rican that looks like black? Then you see a Puerto Rican that looks white. You see a Puerto Rican that looks... Native American, that's all in there. And year after year, decade after decade, century after century, as long as each family of O'Neill's has at least one male, the name sticks. Puerto Rican lineage is all I know. I don't have like a red-haired, pipe-smoking, you know, uncle, McCormick, I lived in Puerto Rico for three months. Spanish was my first language, lost most of it. My dad was born in Puerto Rico. My mom was born in Manhattan. Her parents were from Puerto Rico. They barely spoke English. I'm Puerto Rican. I don't know where that leaves me in the minority thing. You know, when I fill out the census, it's like, I have to check white, because what else do I check? And then after white, I have to check Latino. I, whatever. I don't care. <laughs> they care. I don't care. But, but allow me to speak just for a moment 
Of course, I'm speaking to those of you who have, you're feeling the pressure, you're white, and you're feeling the pressure to conform, and we have to help these poor ethnic minorities. We have to help them. I don't mind help, but don't, don't patronize me. Some of you know, and I, I don't think I've ever brought this up in a sermon before, and I, it's awkward too, but uh, a couple years ago I published a book. It, took, it was a long road to get that book published. Nobody's read it, but it's out there, right? And when I was hunting for a publisher to pick this up, you have to find someone to publish this thing, or you can go the self-publishing route. That just sounded like way too much work. And so I wanted an actual publishing house to put this thing out. And I was put in contact with the senior editor of a very large Christian publishing house, one of the biggest, maybe the biggest, I don't know. And I got this email from this friend, and, and, and the friend said, I don't know how you feel about this. I'm just going to put this out there. But if you mention that you're Hispanic, almost assuredly they'll publish your book. Now, my book is not an autobiography. I'm not talking about when I was growing up and learning Spanish. I'm not trying to sneak in an explanation where O'Neill comes from. I don't care that my name is O'Neill. I'm not trying to defend it. I'm not trying to, you know. Now, now that's a dilemma. Do I email the publisher and say, hey, here's my book about preaching, and by the way, if you want to publish a Latino guy, here you go. It might be total garbage. Maybe nothing I say in there is of any good. And if I... Just on O'Neill, you'd be like, this book is not worthy of publishing. You wouldn't publish it. But if my name was Martinez, if I use my mom's maiden name, Lucas Cruz, then you'll publish it. And I get my goal of getting my book on a shelf. Do I use it? Do I take it? I wrestled with it. Some of you are like, you shouldn't have even wrestled with it. I wrestled with it. I did. Who cares? The goal is get the book published. How should I tell my kids to feel if they get a, a special scholarship? You may not have gotten that scholarship if you didn't check the Latino box, but you did check the box, so here's some money. I, I don't know. It's not neat black and white answer. My final decision was to send the manuscript, and if it's good enough to publish as O'Neill, then it's good enough to publish. Email came back. Very good. We love it. But we just published five other preaching books. None of them did well. We're just taking a time out from preaching books right now. Okay. I hope you understand my perspective. If I email, I'm, like, but, 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 I'm Hispanic. Oh, sorry, that's a game changer. No, you already didn't like the manuscript. And it doesn't help me. It doesn't empower me to pat me on the back like, oh, Vendito, you're a little Hispanic person. You don't write very well. We'll publish your stuff. That just makes me feel dumb. Don't ever, if you're, a, if you're an employer, don't hire somebody like, you know what, I normally hire people in this tier, but we really need some colored people around here. You know, spice things up in the office. You're a five out of 10. But, you know, as long as you don't steal stuff. You don't steal stuff, do you? You're just, you're just racist. You're just racist. Do they have the competence and do they have the character, yes or no? I don't want to be a woke church. I don't want to be an often condescending, victimization-embracing, forgiveness-lacking, sin-redefining church. Or do I want to be a racist church that's deaf to the voice of minorities? But there's a better way to do it. There's a right way to do it. And when perceived civic inequalities rob us of the quality of faith, then we've lost the gospel. The woke gospel, this is, this is important. The woke gospel is a damning gospel because it's all penance and no peace. The woke gospel is a damning gospel because it's all condemnation and no reconciliation. You can never get there. It doesn't matter how many minorities you hire. You'll never get there. We can do reparations. It wasn't enough. You can't, you can't erase. You can't reverse all that's happened. The closest you can get is if we return to the olden days where there's slaves and masters, except the colors are reversed now. And that's where things are going. That shouldn't be the Christian's agenda. The woke gospel is the gospel of inequality because 
The guilt, the problem, is based on an unchangeable reality. You can't do anything about your whiteness, therefore you can never attain the social, even spiritual standing of the oppressed minority who will always be more humble, more spiritual, more God-favored than you. And that's no gospel at all. At the cross, Passover, the blood on the doorpost is the only reason why the angel of death would pass over a house. No other reason. Nothing about social standing, salary, background, history, what the sins of their forefathers were. Blood on the doorpost, you escape death. No blood on the doorpost, death enters in. That's Passover, and that's communion. That's the gospel. At the foot of the cross, there's real equality. Let's go out there with a torch in this darkness and explain to people that equality can really be enjoyed and shared, not by erasing differences, but by joining with each other in Christ. And that's not just a, a, a hallmark card. It's not a cliche, but it's the real truth that we live out in this church and as Christians in this world. Let me pray for us. Father, we are tasked to think and dwell on difficult things. As we read Scripture, there are so many weighty things that we have to grapple with. And every year, every decade, every century, we have to grapple with these things in new ways. We have to figure out in our going context that surrounds us how to live out these truths. So for those of us who feel the pain of inequality, help us to put on biblical lenses to view it, and that some inequalities are unjust, but not all of them are, and we can't sift through which are which without your word, so help us. We need your wisdom, we need your guidance, and we need each other in this room. Help us to have honest conversations. Help us to not be afraid of political conversations, conversations that relate to social actions and the stuff that's out there on social media. If we can't trust each other with it, Lord, we have so much more work to do than probably we thought. Help us to engage with each other in ways that are loving, in ways where we are slow to speak, slow to anger, open hearts, where we put the interests of others before our own. Rather than first expecting the other person to make the righteous and just move, that we would be first whether or not they make that move. And we can only do that if we model Christ. We can only model Christ if you give us what we need to do it. Help us to see it in the actual bread and cup that we hold in our hands in just a moment here. Help us to see that visually in front of us. And may that sink the gospel message deeper into our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.